0: Take your Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. The title of the message is Jesus, Our Only Hope. Jesus, Our Only Hope. We have been making our way through the gospel of Luke. In Luke, we have seen the glory of Jesus revealed. He is truly a glorious Savior. In Luke 2, we saw that Jesus is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In Luke 2, 49, we saw that even early in his own life, he identified himself as the Son of God. In Luke 3 and Luke 9, the Father himself speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. In Luke 4, we saw that Jesus was able to withstand all temptations. And Jesus was rejected by even his home own hometown in Luke 4. We've seen that Jesus has power and authority over sickness, death, nature, and the spiritual realm. We've seen that Jesus speaks with authority and speaks messages of out-of-this-world kind of thinking. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, as we talked about. Jesus demonstrated in Luke seven his authority of for granting forgiveness, and then Jesus sent out his apostles in Luke the beginning of Luke nine. Jesus fed five thousand men with five foot loaves and two fish, and Jesus was properly identified by only a few. So Jesus is glorious. And then he began to predict his death, that he's going to die soon. Last time we saw in Luke a glimpse of God's glory in Jesus. At the transfiguration, the revelation of Jesus' glory as the lights came on and three apostles saw Jesus glorified right before him. So to summarize We've seen so far, far. Jesus is Lord over temptation and sin. Jesus is Lord over physical effects of all the fall. Jesus is Lord over nature. Jesus is Lord over all humanity. Jesus is the Son of God, the chosen Christ of God. Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Savior and Lord. What should be our response? How now should we respond? Jesus gave it to us, right? In Luke 9, the followers of Jesus must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus. That's it. Repentance. Turn and commit and trust in him. He's our life. He's everything. We must deny ourselves. We must pick up our cross daily. We must follow him. Again, when we really understand who Jesus is, we will consider it a privilege to die to self. Like we saw last time, the glory of Jesus ultimately reveals that we should follow him no matter what. He is great. He deserves all of our obedience. We will see today, Jesus must be who we seek first. Always. Seek first, especially in situations where it appears to be impossible. Let's look at our passage, Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 45. Let's read. On the next day, when the crowd came down, or when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions. With foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Let's pray. Father, what a a passage. So many questions and so many things that we see here. Lord, we pray that you help us to understand. We pray that you help us to apply these truths to our heart. We pray that we understand who Christ is and that we will then respond with worship and obedience and trust in all circumstances. We thank you for your word. We commit now our listening to you, and I commit my preaching to you. Please use me, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Luke gives a much shorter account of this, these events than Mark's gospel. Some commentators say this briefer account is given by Luke because he wants to keep the reader's attention on the main theme, Jesus' glory being revealed. After the transfiguration, Jesus comes down from the mountain and shows another glimpse of his glory. So probably here Luke is looking and saying, okay, I want the attention to stay on Luke or on, on Jesus. So Luke says, keep it on Jesus. Focus on him. Let me see, show you his glory as he comes down the mountain. There's definitely a contrast in scenes. While up on the mountain, the glory of the Savior was being revealed. But down below, the disciples who were left behind were wrestling with evil influences. Mark's account states some scribes were arguing with the disciples as Jesus comes down the mountain the next day. So you kind of get this picture in your mind. Glory of God. He's up in the mountains. Everything's beautiful. The three apostles are with him. He starts down the mountain. As he comes down the mountain, there's a bunch of arguing going on. And a large crowd yelling and screaming's going on. What's going on? Glory, the world. The whole sequence of events gives us a glimpse into the whole purpose of Jesus coming to the earth. It's very interesting. It's almost like a little snapshot of Jesus' entire ministry. If you think about it. God, being holy and deserving of full obedience or full glory and honor, abides up in heaven. And mankind is cursed, earth dwelling down on the earth, and wickedness is everywhere. And all of even those that want to follow God are influenced by evil and they're overcome by evil. But Jesus then comes down. From heaven, providing a way of deliverance and a proper understanding of God. Here's a similar picture. Jesus is up on the mountain, a little glimpse of his glory. Down below, the disciples are fighting. The world's a mess. Demons are trapped or ensnaring people. And Jesus walks down, comes down the mountain, and makes things right. It's really all about him. The whole story is about him. Put simple, Jesus does what mankind cannot do. Notice, that's the summary of the whole thing. Jesus can do what no other person can do. So we must trust in him. Or the title of the message, Jesus is our hope. Today, as we once again look at the glory of our Lord, we should all be motivated to seek him in every circumstance we face. There are three stages in this further revelation of Christ's glory. There's the impossible situation, the miraculous solution, and the prophesied rejection. We'll talk about these as we go along. Let's look at the first one, though, the impossible situation. Notice it says, on the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you. Look at my son, for he is my only boy. We can see here the impossible solution, or situation rather, includes five elements. Five elements. First, there is a large crowd. It literally says, a large crowd met him. We have seen Jesus always has a crowd. After John 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd becomes a lot more antagonistic towards Jesus. The crowd includes people that are always kind of looking for an angle to get Jesus, to trap him. In this case, Mark's account gives us further details that the crowd included some scribes that were arguing with the disciples, disciples, squabbling with them. There was a group of scribes, kind of mocking the disciples probably, over them not being able to deliver this man who had the demon. So the situation is a nasty, antagonistic crowd as Jesus comes down the mountain. Second, we see a desperate father. A man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only boy. We see the desperation of this father in the volume of his voice. It says he shouted. He uses this word also for I beg you. It describes his need. He's pleading with God. He's pleading with the Lord, crying out with all that is within him. His son is in an impossible circumstance. Thus he is crying out to the Savior. There's no greater burden, everybody would probably agree with this that has children, than a parent watching their children in an impossible circumstance. I don't know about you, but whether it's sickness or a sin bondage that they have or an impossible trial, here is this father and he's absolutely desperate. He sees this child and he can do nothing about it. It is the most helpless, hopeless feeling that a father can go through. Any of you that are fathers know exactly what I'm talking about. I've experienced it a little bit with Miss Julia, watching her. You walk in in the morning, if she is sick, and it's like, oh, I just wish I could stop her from doing this. I don't like how she's struggling with this. A wish. Oh, I wish I could fix it. It's a desperate feeling in your soul. Well, this guy's situation is a lot worse than mine. He's got a son that's completely controlled by a demon. A violently possessed young boy. It says a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth and the only only with difficulty does it leave him mauling him as it leaves folks you you got to put yourself here so you can see how desperate it is drop down into the world of this person think about what it would be like to be that father and watch his son go through this the language here is horrific. It seizes him. It grabs him suddenly. I don't know about y'all, but have you ever been um, at night, just uh, you know, walking down the hall, and all of a sudden something spook you? You get that? Have you ever been spooked before at night? I have, and it. Woo! I had it happen to me the other day. and it's like, Whoa, what was that? You know, and it was nothing, but it something just spooked me. You can get this idea here of this. All of a sudden, the boy's fine, and it just wham grabs him. It's like, ah, total horrifying shock. And he suddenly screams. It's like, ah, it's got him. The demon terrorizes the boy and throws him into a convulsion, probably something like seizures. Has anybody seen a seizure? I don't know about you, but it's a very helpless feeling if you're the person watching it. It's very sad. It's like, what can I do? Is there anything? You can do nothing. You just sit and watch. And the person's body is just totally out of control, it looks like. We don't know whether this was a seizure, but we know that the demon made it look like a seizure. It looks like that. The person looks totally out of control. His son is wailing around on the ground, frailing all over making the boy even foam at his mouth this has got to be one of the most desperate feelings can you put yourself where that father is what would you do you'd be totally desperate please please somebody can somebody fix this child and what does he get the incompetent disciples <laughs> the fourth. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Now, this is interesting because it says, it literally says they could not, they were unable to do it. You could translate it that way. They were unable to do it. The disciples did not have the power to free this boy from the demon. For whatever reason, because we know previously that Jesus had sent them out with authority over demons, right? Right? Back in the beginning of Luke 9. Why couldn't they do it this time? Well, there's much, much speculation about this. But ultimately, Jesus, in the end, tells the disciples that these kind come out by prayer and fasting. And the implied is you need to depend on God completely for this to happen. You've got to completely trust in God. So in a sense, it appears that the disciples themselves were trying to do it in their own strength maybe. Or they were irritated with the scribes so their hearts weren't right and they couldn't do it. Maybe they were doing it to try to get the scribes approval. I don't know. But, fact, they were unable to do it. So how desperate does the situation get? It gets worse and worse and worse. And Jesus then says, look at the people that are around them. They are an unbelieving and perverted generation. (laughs) Jesus answered and said it. You unbelieving and perverted generation. The idea is is that he literally looks not just to the disciples, not just to the scribes, not just to the man even, because it appears that the man, to a degree, didn't trust either. He says, I believe, but it helped my unbelief in Mark's account later. So it appears he says, looks at the world and says, You guys just don't get it. (laughs) You don't believe me. You don't trust in me. You're perverted. You're skewed. What does this make? It makes for an absolutely impossible circumstance. Impossible. All these elements put together makes it impossible. A huge crowd arguing. A desperate father. A wicked demon A boy in total bondage. A shepherd who can't even be healed by disciples from Christ and a lost world. All this makes for impossible circumstance. Maybe you have your own impossible circumstance. I don't know about you. The more I reflected on this, the more I thought of the numerous situation where I'm desperately needy too. Are you desperately needy? (laughs) How about a lost loved one who appears to be totally out of reach? One that one of those cases that every time you bring up Christ to them or anything about God, they get angry and say, Stop talking to me. Stop bothering me. Maybe there's a marriage relationship that's completely the, on the rocks where one or both of the partners are totally opposed to reconciliation. Maybe there's a job circumstance where a boss or an employer has it out for you. Somebody's out to get you. Everything you do, they want to take you down. Maybe there's a sickness that makes living content impossible. I think of situations like, I mean, right now, right now, Lori Borland, she's got to be. She's just having to sit there and wait. She's in an absolute desperate situation. I, I read the the, uh, the thing the other day about Will. Will had a temperature, I think it was, the other night. And I was thinking to myself, man, that's got to be one of these circumstances where they're just praying for his temperature to come back down, the little boy with cancer. Desperate situations call for what? Complete trust and commitment to the Savior. Not, okay, I can fix this. Okay, I can do this. It's, I need you. I have to confess, there are so many times, ladies and gentlemen, when I even walk up to this pulpit where I am absolutely, desperately needy. I can't teach this without God's help. I need God. You do too. These impossible circumstances are similar to this father's situation. The good news is there's a compassionate Savior who knows your circumstances. We need to run to him like this desperate man. And when things appear to be moving slowly, we must cry out as this man and say, I believe... Help my unbelief. Help me trust you. Because it's moments like this where God's glory is often most on display. It's when we're in these desperate circumstances. When we have no hope and we're at the bottom. That's when God is most glorified. When all we can do is look up and say, help. Those are the moments when God shows his glory. I mean, think about the Bible. Think about the history of the Bible. Joseph in jail. He needed help, and God stepped in and showed his glory. The Israelites, in great bondage in Egypt, being treated as slaves, God steps in and delivers them and demonstrates his glory. Ruth and Naomi, in a land with no husbands or relatives to help, God steps in and provides a kinsman redeemer. Israel, when Goliath, the giant, comes up against them and says, Just send one guy out and we'll fight, and then whoever wins, wins. A giant. God steps in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Facing the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Facing the fiery furnace, God steps in. Over and over and over and over. Desperate circumstance, God steps in, shows his glory. So when we have desperate circumstances, what do we normally do? Why me? We should go, yay, God, here you go. This is a circumstance. This one's for you. It's always that way. Once again, this desperate circumstance leads to a display of the Lord Jesus' glory. Look at it, the miraculous solution. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. In this miraculous solution, we see the glorious Savior revealed once again. Jesus is literally the condescending Savior. Now, the word condescension... Condescension can be used in a bad sense or it can be used in a good sense. It can only be used in a good sense when with regard to Jesus. It cannot be used in a good sense for humans. Condescension says that a person steps down to place themselves on the same level as somebody below them. To condescend is to step down and to put himself in a place where he's on the same level. Okay? Nobody in this room can make the statement Jesus made. Nobody. Nobody in this room better say this statement. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you? (laughs) How long shall I be with you? I'm sick of this church. You sinners. That would be condescension. Me looking down and saying, oh, here I am. I'm with you. You sinners. You know what's wrong with that statement? I'm a sinner. I'm not better than you. I never was in glory. I'm not God. For me to say I step down and I'm with you, you sinners, would say that I'm better than you. Which would show What? I'm the worst sinner because I think I'm better than you. But only Jesus can say that statement. No other man in this room can think that they are better than anybody else. Only God is better than anybody in this room because he made us. He's the creator. And Jesus turns the lights on. And literally, if somebody ever says, I need a deity verse, this is the deity verse. Because either Jesus is extraordinarily prideful, saying, how long shall I put up with you? Or he's God. He's God. How shall I, how long shall I put up with you? See, Jesus condescended. He came down. Did he have to help this man? Did he have to solve this evil demon and cast it out? No. He would have been perfectly just to leave the father in his unbelief, leave the fighting, arguing disciples in their unbelief. He would have been perfectly just to stay on the mountain. Do you get this? He sh- He would have been perfectly just to stay in the transfigurated glory. This is my son in whom I love. Listen to him. He could have stayed there. Everybody listens to him in glory. But what did he do? Oh. The solution to the miracle or to the situation is a miracle from the condescending Savior. What a gracious and compassionate and amazing God we serve. God came to earth. Why should we serve him? Because he is that condescending Savior. Second, we see he's a gracious Savior. He says, bring me your son. Despite the unbelief and the sinfulness of all those around him, Jesus still intercedes on behalf of the man. And he says bring me your son. Jesus gives grace to the father despite the weak faith. Despite his unbelief, he still st- still rescues the son. He is gracious. Ladies and gentlemen, he is so kind and gracious to us wicked, wretched sinners. None of us deserve his blessings. None of us. I was reminded, man, and by the way, if you are able to watch Wretched TV, if you have those channels, you have got to watch this guy. He is fantastic, Todd Friel. He was talking this week about the grace of God and how we take the grace of God and we throw it to the side and how we think that we deserve God's favor and we're much like that Pharisee that says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man over there, that sinner. We elevate ourselves even in our prayers to God. Now, you might say, well, didn't that guy, as Todd was saying, didn't that guy actually thank God that he wasn't like that? Hmm. No. No. He even took the, the grace that God gave him to elevate himself up and say, I'm better than that person over there. He took the grace itself that he wasn't in bondage to a sin over there and said, hey, look at me, turned it upside down. All that we have, if you're good at all, any goodness in you is not because of you. It's because of the grace of God. So none of us stand up and say, I'm special, I'm good, I'm the best. I'm better than that person over there. But every time we judge other people, we are doing that. When somebody doesn't treat us the way we want them to treat, we say, I deserve better. I deserve to be treated better. What are we saying? I'm good. I'm good. I deserve to be treated better. God is a gracious God. He sees that, even that own hypocrisy and within our hearts, and he still gives us blessings. He still gives us unmerited favor. He still says, bring me your son. I hear your request. No matter how much hypocrisy is in every single one of us, he still is gracious and kind. Oh, what a Savior! What a Savior! I believe. Help my unbelief. We see he's a recognized Savior, recognizable. While he was approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. The demon knew who Jesus was, as we've seen numerous times. Mark's account says... As soon as Jesus was seen, the demon threw the boy into a convulsion. As soon as he was, he saw Jesus, he knew who he was, and he threw a temper tantrum in the man, in the boy. He literally said, yep, I know who you are. I'm, I hate you. And all that there is with you, I'm going to make this boy suffer. He's a recognizable Savior. He's also an authoritative Savior. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. Jesus speaks authoritatively to the demon. He rebuked the demon. He's rebuked demons in 435. He's rebuked a fever in 439. He's rebuked the wind in 824. And he will rebuke James and John when their attitudes are not right in Luke 9:55 Jesus speaks with authority because he is God in the flesh and he speaks and it happens he's an authoritative savior his word is authoritative he speaks and it happens notice the boy was healed instantly and finally we see he's a compassionate savior notice Jesus Jesus' love is on display even after he cast out the demon. I love this little phrase, he gave him back to his father. We see this little phrase, in this little phrase, Jesus was about the small details of loving people. You say, what's so big about that? Well, just like when he raised the little girl from the dead, he instructed them to give her a little bit of food to eat. It took just that little insight there. You see his compassion. Every little detail. It's like, I saw you, desperate father. I saw you in your need. He sees with compassion. He healed the boy and he said, here you go, daddy. What an amazing picture. We see the Savior looked at the agony of the father and brought the healed boy back to the father. We know... From the other accounts mentioned, that the father had said, like I said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what did he do? Think about this. It's like, it's like heal. Believe in me. Help my unbelief. Believe, believe in me. Just heal him for you. It's just the grace and compassion and love of our Savior. Oh, I'm so thankful he's like that because I'm not like that. Not naturally. Are you compassionate naturally? No. We're quick to wrath, and slander, and beat everybody up. But he's compassionate. He sees these people that are hurting. He sees me hurting, and he helps me. And he helps you. He's compassionate. Jesus says in effect to his prayer or his petition, I believe, help my unbelief. He says in effect, I heard your prayer, Father. I healed your son. I know you love him. And here he is. I'm a compassionate Savior. Believe in me. That's what that little phrase is all about. It's like, get your eyes on me. I'm your compassionate Savior. One commentator stated with regards to this little phrase, Jesus is the healer with heart. The healer with heart. He heals not just to show off himself, but he heals with compassion as his motivation. His motives are not just to show off his glory, but to show off his compassionate heart that's within him, moving him to do these things. Folks, what is the solution to a desperate circumstance? What is it? A compassionate Savior, a condescending Savior, a gracious Savior, a recognizable Savior, an authoritative Savior. For today's passage, if you get nothing else, I pray you understand a little more just how amazing Jesus is. As we understand and experience the Savior, we will be motivated to trust Him more in every circumstance in our life. Again, as mentioned last week, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross daily, and to follow Jesus is not a burden. It's a privilege. It's a joy. (laughs) To say no more me, to follow glorious Jesus is the wisest thing you could ever do in this whole entire world. He's worth it. There's nothing in this world that compares to knowing and enjoying and delighting in Jesus forever. Nothing. Do you believe that way? I hope so. So are you in a desperate circumstance? Are you hurting? Are you in need? Call upon the condescending Savior. Though he's God, he will step down and listen to you. He will help Call upon the gracious Savior. He will provide grace despite your circumstance. He is authoritative. He will because He is sovereign. He is the Lord. He will work in your circumstance. Does that mean that He is going to always heal you? No. But it does mean that he will always display his glory in your life and he will provide grace to show off Christ so that in eternity future you will bask in his glory and enjoy him forever this is a blip folks i guarantee you if you ask john what was his life how long was it he would say it was a blip but eternity and glory enjoying him is what it's all about. So what are we supposed to do? Humble ourselves and ask for help. I need you. So once again, we see the glimpse of the Savior's glory. This brings us to the response to his glory, the prophesied rejection. This goes totally contrary to everything the world would think. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Here we see immediately, even as the worship is flowing to Jesus, Jesus throws ice water on the disciples. It's it's almost shocking. God is being worshipped. They're marveling at what Jesus is doing. The crowd is going wild. And he takes out a bucket of ice water and throws it on his disciples. And says, guess what? Everybody's going to reject me. The other accounts say, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. What? Here is the glory of Jesus on display. The glory of the master on display. And what does he say? Take this. I'm going to die. Everybody's going to reject me. Why? Because the peoples were still a wicked and perverse generation. The people were still unbelieving. They were in awe of a miracle, sure. But they were not submissive to the Lord that was in their presence. They had not and were not committed. They weren't committed. They were not deny myself, pick up my cross daily and follow him. They were for lack of a better term, like a big crowd that goes crazy at a touchdown in a football game. There was marveling, there was worship, but there wasn't genuine commitment. It was all about saying it, but their hearts were far from him. Folks, Jesus knew. Jesus understood, and I think it plays into the last part of this verse that's but they did not understand his statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Now, this is very difficult, I admit. This is hard. Who concealed it from them? Was it Satan? Or was it God? Or was it themselves, as some say? Well, it's an active tense, so I don't think so. I think it's probably God, to some degree, concealed it from them. But Why? Well, all I can tell you is God had a plan. (laughs) That was his plan. They couldn't completely get it. But I will tell you this, that I think their hearts played into it just fine. Their own responsibility in it was there, too. Because you can see them at the pep rally, can't you? This guy's healed. What are they thinking? He's the king. He's the king. He's the king. Yay! We're going to be in glory. Matter of fact, I bet you, you know who was probably leading the hurrahs? Peter, James, and John. Think about this. They just saw Jesus in his glory up on the mountain. Yeah, buddy, this is getting good. Look at all these people. They're worshiping him. Yeah, and I'm one of his. Matter of fact, you'll see it next verses. I think I'm the greatest. I think I'm the best. I think I'm Jesus' homeboy. <laughs> right next to him, got it all together. That's me. You know what that is? Pride, arrogance, selfishness. Oh, all the things that are necessary for missing God's word. Did you hear me? Listen closely. Turn the ears on. Same thing Jesus says. Let these words sink deeply into your heart. Listen. Pride, arrogance, selfishness will make you miss the whole point of this message. And the point of the message is Jesus can, you can't submit to him, honor him. He died. He paid for your sin. He's righteous. You killed Jesus. That's the point. Wow, what a story, huh? What a Savior. What a glorious God. What is your response? I hope it is like that man, that Father. I believe. Help my unbelief. You are God. I am not. I'm just a man. You are the God-man. This is a desperate situation we live in too here, folks. We live in a very, very wicked, sinful world. I know you. some of you might say, man, Mike, you're being a little harsh on the world. No, the world is just harsh. It is ugly, sinful. Even us who are... Born again believers have new hearts. The sin that resides in us is absolutely sickening. You know who most of ours, you know who's the best person in our life, the one that we think about the most, even after salvation? It's us. We are selfish people, selfish, ugly. Self-centered, evil, wicked people. That's who we are. It goes from me to Ronaldo to Mark, Ryan, Antoine, all of us. We're wicked, wretched, miserable sinners inside of our hearts. We're ugly. We are in a desperate circumstance. Desperate. Help me, change me, clean me up, or take me home. And he says, I will. You are my child. I love you. I am your father and you are my son. I will save. What a good God we serve. And he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Thank God. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for Christ. Kill our sinfulness, God. Show us our pride. Reveal our unbelief. Expose us, God. So that we will run to your Son. Thank you for him, the rejected one who took our wrath on himself so that we could be called children of God. We worship you. We praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.